Get into the Word today. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of the Word. Our passage today is found in Mark chapter 6. And he reads this in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have time or chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all of the towns. And they got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and so he began teaching them many things. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence that is here. And our heart's desire is to love you. Our heart's desire is to cultivate a heart that desires and longs for more of you. God, we thank you for this series that we've been in. But Lord, we want it to be a propelling action into more of you, into learning and being with you, King Jesus. God, I pray that you would just open our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds to what you have to say today. May this seed go deep into our hearts today. May the words that I speak, Holy Spirit, would you anoint, would you move upon, would you transform Would you bring nourishment to our souls today? We thank you that you are our daily bread. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Please be seated. Blaise Pascal said this, all of humanity's problems stem from a person's inability to sit quiet in a room alone. And the parents said, amen. All of humanity's problems stem from a person's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That sounds like a big statement to cover all of the world's problems. But let's just imagine that for a second. When we think about people and the hurriedness of life, the wars that were started because of the anger, the frustration that happened in, that caused conflict, how you think about your day, that when you got angry at someone or you became frustrated or you felt in your body this tension, you were moving so quickly, you had so much to do, you had so much to be at. And so that tension that we feel is because for some reason in the 21st century, we are growing into the problem of having a hard time of sitting still alone, just alone by ourselves. I wonder if this is true. I wonder if we eliminated hurry, as Dallas Willard said, from our lives. Would we be people of love? Imagine with me right now, creating margin in your mornings that when you wake up, you don't just reach for your phone. No, you say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, Jesus. How's it going? Have you ever asked God how he's doing? 
Sometimes I think it's like the needless, oh God, it's Monday morning. God, I need to do this. Would you be with me? Thank you, Jesus. Off we go. But what if we were still before God in our mornings, creating space? What about creating space for rest? That's my ever journey, and I'm always being corrected by others. I'm trying. Yesterday, Saturday was an attempt. Every day, I'm thankful for God's grace and mercy. Amen? That I try and take a day off and stop and enjoy the presence of God. Yesterday was a stunning and beautiful day. We don't get many blue skies in Pennsylvania, amen? And so when you've got just the background, the kids are on the playground, the yellow trees, the blue sky, you stop and you breathe in goodness. And so for me, what if I started creating more rest? In fact, before you go into a meeting with someone, or an appointment, or a lunch date, that you would take five minutes just to be with Jesus. I know that requires for some of you turning up before the appointed time, and that is a challenge in itself. But what if you spent five minutes before you went in with that person saying, God, do you have a word for that person? God, what strains and stresses am I carrying that I need to take off of me right now? What if in our quiet that what we've been talking about last week, about naming the things, the ugly side of who we are. What if we started to name some of the ugliness, bringing it before a loving God, saying, God, this is my brokenness. This is my frustration. God, would you transform it? And slowly over time, that God would take the ugly side of who we are and meld it into love. Maybe we wouldn't need to be right all the time, husbands in the room. Maybe we wouldn't need to be right all the time and maybe we would come with encouragement to someone else rather than looking to one-up the other person. What would happen to our clenched jaw, our boiling over frustration, our tension in our body, the snap-back answers that we always have to give, the constant rushing thoughts? We're unable to be present. What if we took this practice seriously? And what if we became vessels of love to other people? Amen? That's our our joy. And so I love this phrase from uh, Pete Scazzera here. He says this, Christianity is not something you do as much as something that is done to you. Christianity is not something you do as much as something that you do to you. And so when we talk about being a transforming people, we're talking about practicing the way. We're talking about practicing the way, and our challenge is allowing Jesus to do the work in us. Can I get an amen this morning? Because I want to transform what I want. Like, God, I, I, I want to have more confidence. Man, I want to be more blessed. I want to be more blessed. Can you create favor in my life? And, and Jesus is like, no, you've got this ugliness that I really want. But I don't want to touch that right now. Like I want, and he's like, no, I want to touch the most Christ unlikeness in you. And I challenge is allowing Jesus. And I think this practice is one of those practices where we just sit in silence with our minds fixed on Jesus. No words, no scripture, just fixated on the beauty of King Jesus. And we've been practicing that as a connect group. And I love the feedback. It's like, Johnny, within 30 seconds, it's done. 
Like I'm out of here. My mind is already filled with all the to-do lists, the emails I've got to respond to, the text messages. And I'm like, I get it. But what if this is a practice of training? Rather than trying to do something, we become something. What if we become love? The challenge is allowing him to love you. And that is a work in us. And so I've really enjoyed this series, whether you have or not. For me, this has been an amazing season. The conversion in the solitude. So we've been looking at 1 Kings 19, using Elijah's story in 1 Kings 19 as the basis of how we convert in solitude. We broke it down like this over the couple of weeks. That is the wrong point. There we go. Science and solitude. We talked about resting. Before anything happened to Elijah's life, he rested in the presence of God. He ate and sleep, ate and sleep. And as we said, that's the ministry that we all want, to eat, sleep, eat, sleep, eat, sleep. We're like, God, I want to rest. But how many of you have been taught rest in the presence of God? I think so many of us have been taught a read more Pray more, which is all good things. But what if we learn to rest? Because some of us are so exhausted, we can't even pray. We're so filled with tensions and fear in our minds that what do I even pray? And so God is like, I want you to rest. Because resting silences the other voices. And suddenly, you know, when you get into a quiet room, everything becomes more sensitive. And we begin to hear the still, small voice of God. But then we begin to name things. This is the hard part for us all. Again, as a connect group, we talked about this. And for us in Western society, with us wanting the Instagram filter, we don't like to talk about our stuff. We don't want to go beneath the surface. But this is a community that I'm so desperate to create that you can come with your brokenness. You will not be judged. You will come with your frailties. You will come with your problems and that we will have a loving community that says, me too. I struggle as well because every one of us struggles with something in this room. Amen. There is something that holds us back from loving God wholly. And what if we created a community that we allowed the ugliness to come to the surface and say, you know what? I want to transform. I want to change. We name to transform. We name it to change it is what we talked about last week. So today, we are jumping into re-entering to love. That is the point today if you're taking notes, re-entering to love. So let's go back to 1 Kings 19 one last time for the final part of the story today. So when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak. Remember, the earth, wind, and fire had occurred, and he heard the still, small voice. He pulled his cloak over his face in reverence of a holy God. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave, and there a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? This is, again, his same reply. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. You will there anoint Hazel, king over Ram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nishnah. 
king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, Abel, and Meholah to succeed you as prophet. I think about this when I heard Elijah share that story again, that he says verbatim the exact same phrase that he said before. So he's had the presence of God happen. He's had an awakening moment where the very voice of God has spoken to him. And his phrase is exactly the same. It looks like there's no change in his heart. But I would argue that there would be a voice difference. There would be, rather than complain to God, look, I've been zealous for you. I've done the work for you. I've done all the good things for you, God. This nation is going to part. I can't do anything. I'm the only one left. Rather than complaining to God, I almost have this image of Elijah saying, you know, I've, been, I've done a pretty good job for you, God. Like, I've done seven awesome miracles. I mean, who's called fire down from heaven, right? Who's stopped rain for three and a half years? I mean, doesn't that deserve me a breakup here? These people are useless. I've tried. We've done all these things together. They're not listening. I'm the only one. Get someone else. Do you think that he might reply like that? Because this is my point. A transformational danger is inward love. Transformational danger is an inward love. In society right now, we are hyper self-improvement. Would you agree? Be the best you, whether physical or mentally. And the danger is leaking into Christian society. That we also are saying, Jesus, give me the wisdom. Give me the knowledge on how I can be a better person. But it ends up just being inward love. In fact, we end up being like Elijah. Can I just live the comfortable Christian life on top of this mountain? Like Peter, can we just build a tabernacle in these four walls and just enjoy being in the presence of God on a Sunday? Do we feel that ache as well? God, I'm really tired Can we just transform up here? And God's heart is always that transformation leads us to loving other people. This is what it's all about. We are not here just for a good time. No, we're here to go out of the four walls, to be the expression of love to the church, be the church outside of these four walls. This is merely an airport where we come in, we get refueled, and we are sent out on mission to the places that are desperate, dark, and need of Jesus. Amen? This is what we are here. And so I love that God tenderly says, go. Go back down the mountain. Go be love. Encourage. I want you to pass on. Because I said, the greatest miracle of Elijah's life was passing on the baton to Elisha. The greatest miracle was that his legacy of what God was doing moved on and multiplied. He doubled. Elisha multiplied Elijah's miracles. That's the beauty of what we want to do. I've seen and I've been in parts of churches where we've just had the glory, the goodness of God, and kept it in the four walls, and we just had stagnant water. And it gets to smell a little stinky. People start to become a little bitter towards one another. They start to point fingers and and start to say, well, this church doesn't give me this. This church doesn't do this for me. When was it ever about how good anything this does? Is it causing you to grow and go outside the four walls? That's the question. Is it causing you to be more than what you are today? 
This is what the gospel is all about. And so we need to. And so this message today is a litmus test for you. A litmus test. Remember science growing up? You had to put the litmus paper into the water, see if it's acidic or alkaline. You guys remember that? Some trauma, okay, it's all right. Um, But this is what this message is going to do. We're going to hold up the way of Jesus to our lives, and we're going to see where we're at. It might feel a little uncomfortable, but at the same time, remember there is grace that God is calling you higher. I think I read this quote today, that the pressure of life is a gift because it is asking something of you. Pressure is a good thing because it believes that you are responsible for something. It believes that you are more than what you could ever be. The grace of God believes that you are more than you could ever be. So let's journey together in re-entering to love and let's bring this to the surface today. And the question I want you to ask as you're doing this, reflect now, what is my quiet time producing in me? What is, and for some of you are like, yeah, I haven't had a quiet time in a while. No, no judgment. No, it's okay. Like, what has or is your quiet time producing in you? And so let's just go through a passage. We're going to go back through our passage that we just read. And so this is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We open up. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So the disciples now are casting out demons. They are healing people. They are preaching the gospel. And signs and wonders are following them. How good is that? Like, that's what... You and me can do. Fishers of men, people who in Acts were considered disqualified, not very smart, fit that category really good. And so these were the people doing the signs and wonders. And he reported and they celebrated. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So the disciples have got the goods. So not only is Jesus doing amazing miracles, he is passing on that mantle to other people. Do you not feel that that is going to elevate who you are? We've got the pyramid scheme going on in a healthy way. Like, right? Like, it's, it's like Jesus is now multiplying his ministry to other people. It's not just one person. So you're not just wanting to be with Jesus just for what he can do. No, it's what he can impart to you. Can you imagine the thousands from every single town that would come? And for us, the demand of success is just as potent. We will be demanded of things from our ability. And we have that constant pull on our lives. Are we going to be God or not? I I think about ministry in this way as well for my own church, uh, how I've led You know, the constant demand upon my life, will I feed the demand or will I let God lead? I think it's funny that Jesus is like, if he had money, he'd be paying people to get away. He would be like, can I give money to get away where we pay money to get success? We pay money to be able to have influences come into our life. Jesus turned that upside down. Guys, any moment you get, get away with me. Come away with me. The demand of life. And so as we carry on the story. And so they went 
away by themselves into a boat, into a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from the towns and they got there ahead of them. And when Jesus landed, they saw a large crowd. So they are in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is about a 10-mile walk around. It's about four miles across on boats. And so they're like, let's get away. Let's escape. But the Sea of Galilee is very, like, the weather changes in a moment. It's a small little, maybe a large lake is what we would say. And so you can have a really successful wind that will get you really far across really quickly. Or you can have stillness and the boat just gets stuck. So you can imagine, we're going to get away, get away, get away, and then the boat just sinks in the middle. You just see these people, this crowd of people, slowly moving away ahead on the other side. Have you ever had that moment of an interruption where you're trying to get rest, and then suddenly something interrupts it? How did you respond, especially young parents in the room? You know, can I just have some me time right now? Mom, Dad, I pooped. Can you wipe my butt, please? Hey, can I get some food, please? Right, we get these calls through to us when we try, and we try and hide. I don't know about young parents, but we've got places that we try and escape from our kids. We've got drawers of chocolate stored away so they don't try and nab our stuff. Like, we try and escape from the ones we love, but often we have these interruptions in this space. So the question that we have is not only how will you respond to the demand in your life, when things get busy, will you recede with Jesus? But what happens to you in the interruptions? When you're trying to escape and the interruption comes, does it become a holy interruption? And I love that word, a holy interruption. Something from John Mark Comer who said that. And I've just taken hold of it. That when my kids come into the room, will I see it as a holy interruption? That God, you're in this. And so what is Jesus' response? He had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. This word compassion Comp, which means with. Passion, which has um, roots to suffering. And so what we can say when we say compassion is to suffer with someone. Suffer with them. And I, I love that expression for it, that we are people called to compassion to suffer with. But compassion is the very first meaning that we have with people. Uh, sorry, the very first word that God calls himself as Yahweh. He describes Yahweh as compassionate. Rahum is the word. And Rahum means womb. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It has roots to the word womb, a mother's womb. And that is the heart posture of the father, that tender feeling towards a vulnerable infant. Do you think of God that way, that he is compassionate? He has a, a, a nature which cares for a child in the womb that is vulnerable and tender. And he carries on with this attachment. He says, I see you like a sheep, and I'm your shepherd. The amazing thing about shepherds, they protect, they provide, 
and they bring purpose. They guide the sheep. And so this caring that Jesus has, while interrupted, right? His ministry is skyrocketing. He's getting interrupted, and he has the deepest form of care for someone. Like That's mind-blowing, that he would bring compassion to those people. We'll carry on with the story. So by that time, it was late. So he had compassion. He started teaching the many. And so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so that we can go to the surrounding countryside and villages, buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. I want you to hold that phrase today, you give them something to eat. Because when Jesus gives a request or asks a question, it normally has double meaning. They said to him that would make more than half of a year's wages to have bread for all of these people. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found it, they said they had five loaves and two fish. You give them something to eat. This question is almost like a test from Jesus. What has your time alone with the Father produced in you? What has it produced inside of you? You give them something to eat. What do you care about? Was your quiet time more about yourself or did it come to feed other people? And I love it. The disciples' response is obviously in the physicality. There's no way we can feed any of these people. There's just no way. We don't have the physical resources. How many of you feel like when you've come out of a quiet time with Jesus, or maybe this is your quiet time for the week, that how quickly it runs out? Some of us feel like we have five loaves and two fishes trying to feed 5,000. And I love what he does. Bring what you have back to the person. So let me just give you a, a question, a thought. This is, this is our big thought for the, this morning, and I'm going to break down what this means. The question is not what is going to feed them, but who will feed them. Jesus multiplies the small because we trust the who. What do I mean by that? So Jesus, when he asks, you feed them, He's not just talking physically. He's also talking spiritually. Jesus, in the test, when he went into the temptation in the desert, what was the first thing that the devil tried to get him to do? Tried to get rocks into loaves. He tried to get the physicality. And what was Jesus' response? Bible quiz. Not by bread alone, not by physical, but by what? By the words of the Father. So Jesus is already kind of testing them. I imagine he would have taught them. This is what the devil tries to do. He tries to make you relevant. He tries to make you have the physical things, put your attention on the physical rather than the spiritual. And he, you would have kind of felt that. He also did that with the feeding of the 4,000. They had seven loaves this time to fill. Smaller number, more loaves. There were less baskets left over. There were only seven baskets. 5,000 people, five loaves, 12 baskets, less physical, more output. This is what Jesus is trying to teach them. Not the what. Stop trusting in the what. You're going to need to trust the who. You're going to need to trust who Jesus is. Will you trust 
the physicalness. So will your quiet times, is your quiet times producing you to more trust in the physical or is it causing you to trust in the spiritual? Are you being caused to trust in what you physically have before you or are you coming to trust and know the who that is Jesus? Because I tell you, this is the big picture. This is what I'm going to keep breaking down for you today. You have got to, as a Christian, be led to the bread of life, the personhood of Jesus. You can't be led to just the what's, the cool sermons, the podcasts, the latest five truths. They are the what's. They are the five loaves and the two fish. They will get you somewhere. They will feed you. But actually, Jesus invites them. It's a great trick question because he meets them on their level and he says, you know, okay, give me, give me your what. I wasn't talking about the what, but I was expecting what was inside of you. This is a test to see what you're going to produce. Okay, I'll meet you on the what. What do you have? And he brings the small what to the picture and he multiplies it. Because he will take your what, but so many Christians, so many of us, because of our quiet times, we come just for the revelation with God, and we never meet with the personhood of Jesus. That's what Jesus wants for us, church. He wants to draw you into Scripture. This is your five loaves and two fishes. This is your basic truth, and he wants to come and say, what do you have? Bring to me the truth. Bring to me what you have, because I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to love me as I love you. I long for a relationship. I want you to feed them with the who of Jesus rather than the what of Jesus. This is the thought we're going to break down today. So go to Jeremiah 17 because I think about this. When we're trusting in something, uh, I like to think what is trust And I like to go to physical images. The Bible, over and over again, when it talks about trust, it uses a visual picture of a tree. This is one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah of a comparison of a a tree or a bush in different environments. And so Jeremiah, just for context, is a prophet. Um, He's a prophet to Israel, uh, into South Israel, into Jerusalem. And for 20 years, he's been prophesying, guys, if you don't change your ways, stop trusting in your what, in your own abilities, and start trusting in the who, which is Yahweh. And he's been going for 20 years, and they're not listening. And they're not going to listen. And eventually, Babylon is going to overthrow them, and Israel is going to go into exile. And so he says this, this is what the Lord says, cursed is the one who trusts in man, in their own ability, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the waste fields. Imagine this picture, a desert and a single bush just holding its own. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will not dwell in the par- they will dwell in the parched lands of the desert in a salt land where there is where no one lives. So we've got this picture of something that's alone. They've trusted in their own strength, their own morals, their own ability. Can we be honest? It sounds a lot like the Western world, like America. I've got my insurances, I've got my paycheck, I've got my ideas, my truth, I don't need God. Even though we say in God we trust on a dollar bill, because let's be honest, it probably is a dollar bill's worth of trust. 
But if we say that it, but it is not being represented in this nation. And so what we're seeing play out over America right now is because we're trusting in our own strength. And we will see loneliness. We will see our prosperity rain. And even if it rains in the desert, right? Even if the rain comes, the blessing comes, it just washes away. I think the church needs to get hold of this. If God poured out a revival upon the church, it would just wash away because we trust more in the what than the who. We trust more in the revelation than the the person who gave the revelation. We dwell. And so then Jeremiah compares this to, he goes on, he says, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him who is Yahweh. They will be like a tree planted by the waters that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when, it, when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Can I get an amen this morning? That that's the kind of life that we want. We want to be people that do not fear when the heat comes. Leaves that are always green, always producing. And it has no worries, but it bears fruits. Worry and producing. Worry and producing. The two things, the fear. Do not fear is one of the the most commanded things that God has. Because we are Christians that move from fear to love. This is what we do in our journey. Scholars believe, just to give you a picture of what he's talking about in this. And so about 30 miles outside of uh, the, Sa- uh, the Sea of Galilee is this place, and I'm going to try and butcher this word, Gan Hashloshla. It's about as good as I'm going to get, so I'll leave it at that. But this is what they believe, the scholars believe, that Jeremiah was talking about. This is the Garden of Eden. That they're not, not physical garden, I mean, but what the priests or the rabbis, when they came to this place, this is Holy. And the interesting thing is, this is amongst a desert. So all around you can see the mountains, dry space, but you've got this one place which is an oasis. Isn't this a beautiful picture of what we want for our spiritual lives? It's not through the rains, it's not the what that waters this place, but it has streams that underneath that water it. It has an underwater, a secret place which waters the gardens. This is the picture of what God is saying. This is what Jeremiah is saying. If you put your trust in the what, you're going to be barren. You're going to be in the desert. But if you come to have trust in the who, you're going to be like an oasis in the desert. You're going to be an oasis in the workplace. You're going to be an oasis in your family today. This is what we are cultivated and called to do. But in the passage, which was interesting, it said in the first part, Cursed is the man who trusts and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. We have confidence always. You don't ever lose confidence. I know Scripture says don't throw away your confidence, but I would suggest that it gets thrown in the wrong direction. You will either have confidence in yourself or God. That confidence might be really, really low, but you're still going to require. I I get to minister on Wednesday mornings to homeless people, and they have confidence in themselves. In fact, you can't help them because they want to live their way. They are confident in living on the streets. 
We had a, a woman that would drive past here. I got to speak to her a few times, and I, I really pleaded with her, you need to find space. You need to find a home. She goes, well, no one can help me. You ever met those people? No one can help me. It's because they have confidence only in themselves, and they've just gone downhill, and they've hit rock bottom. And obviously, different people have different rock bottoms, but my heart was like, can you trust in God again? Can you get back to the mission? I know that something went down, but could you go back there? Would you trust again? Confidence happens no matter what, but everything turns where your heart is. Everything turns where your heart is. So your confidence will be where your heart is leading you today. So if you've got desires of God, your confidence will be led there. But if your desires are for other things, you will put your confidence in those things. Does that sound right? Like that's what we experience. The reason why I have a lot of fear in my life is because my confidence is not where it should be. I'm desiring something else. And so our constant reorientation is to desire Jesus. I want to land here today in John 21, this story, because I love Jesus' idea of what trust is. Peter, who, before we get to that passage in 21 verse 15, Peter is you know, the guy, the man. We talk about him a lot because he was the one who was, for some reason, Jesus said, I want to build the church with you, Peter. The one who had the loudest mouth. The one who was the most passionate. He wasn't perfect, but he was passionate. And he came to the night before the cross and said, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to go die. And he goes, no, Lord, no way, Jose. And you are going to deny me, Peter. No way, no way. In fact, I am going to die with you, Jesus. I have trust in you, Jesus. I trust you. Me and you, Jesus, we are ride or die. We're going to make this happen. We're going to make this kingdom happen. We're going to die together. And what happens to Peter? He fails. Jesus says the accuser wishes to sift you. And what do we discover? His response. He prophesies over himself. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. That was an actual reality of Peter. Because Peter thought he knew. He knew the what about Jesus. He knew that Jesus could produce miracles. He knew that Jesus could do amazing things. He knew the teachings of Jesus. He knew the what. And I think the challenge for us, church, is if someone who can hang around for Jesus for three years, see all the signs and wonders, know all the things, but when they believe only in the what, they're going to fall apart. There is a church that only has confidence and trust in the what, in the five loaves and two fishes. But there is a confidence that we need to have in trusting him today. And so this story comes to, and Jesus, you would think that Jesus would say, hey, Peter, the wood's burning right now. They've come back together again. The resurrection has occurred and he asked Peter this question, do you love me? Now, normally we would ask, do you even trust me, Peter? Do you trust me? But I love that he changes that language because really trust is about love. He says, do you agape me? Do you love me with all of your heart? Will you die for me? And Peter says, and we lose this in translation because of the English. We only have one word for love. But it says, will you 
He says, I phileo you. I care for you, God, Jesus. I care for you. Which is a really cool reality because Peter himself would be like, of course I agape you before the cross. Like, I agape you, agape you, the highest form of love. But now Peter has been humbled and he says, I phileo you, I, I care for you. He asks the question again, do you agape me, Peter? Do you love me with all of your heart? And he says, I phileo you. And then Peter, Jesus says it again, do you phileo me? Do you really care for me, Peter? And Peter breaks down in that moment. I don't know. You know me. Hopefully, I care for you. But Jesus' response is simply, come, follow me. For us in this room today, we may be thinking, well, how do do I love Jesus? Do you love me? And just take a moment just to pause in that fact. Because if desire leads us to confidence in Jesus, we need to see how are we loving him today. To re-enter, to be loving vessels of Jesus to our worlds, do you love me is the question we need to ask ourselves right now. Are we on the journey of agape love that says, I love you, Jesus, with all of my heart. I desire to make you Lord of my life. Maybe I just care for you right now, but I want to desperately, desperately love you. And I love Jesus' response. If you love me, you're going to love my sheep. And maybe there's a hard truth today. Maybe for you today, you felt like you're Elijah. You're on top of the mountain. You've been loved by Jesus, and you've been in the safe place where you just want to live the transformation life out. And Jesus is inviting us, if you love me, then you'll get out and love my sheep. You will love those who are unlovable. You will love the broken. You will love those people. I think about my own story today. I feel like for numbers of years, in fact, if I'm honest, this year, I've had a vocation of caring for people, right? And for more than I care to really admit, probably I've been operating on five loaves and two fish. I've been operating on what I have, the revelation of Jesus rather than the personhood of Jesus. Guys, let's come back to the room. Come to me. Come to me. Well, person walked into the room. It's okay. Okay, here we go. Back again. Five fish. I had five fish and two, sorry, five loaves and two fish living inside. I had five loaves and two fish, and I was living on the what of Jesus. But I want to live on the personhood of Jesus. Man, I so desperately, and I love what Jesus is doing in me in this season. As I've just been stripped away, as I've been naming some of the brokenness in my life, can I tell you, I just love hanging out with Jesus. Not even the words of Jesus. No, just imagining me and Jesus being together in a space and just Him loving me and me loving Him. Just looking at Him. I tell you, it's funny. So I'm teaching my kids how to follow Jesus. And uh, we talked around the table and just asked, I asked them the question, do you love Jesus? And they're like, what? Ugh, love Jesus? What, you mean like kissing and stuff? Like so often, but isn't that a beautiful child experience? Because it's like, 
but it's intimate. It's real. It's actually you being tender and vulnerable to him. I mean, I know we've distorted what kissing looks like because of society, but what if that is the kind of intimacy that we were called to do? For Western life, I know that for some in the room, that's really like, I don't know if I can go there, Johnny. But what if agape love looked like intimate love with Jesus so that we can love people well? So my question today, do you love Jesus? Not the what's, not the five loaves and two fishes, but letting what you have, the five loaves, bring what you have, but let Jesus love you. Come to the who today. Let's just have a look at that question again today. No, wrong one. Any second glasses? The question is not what is going to feed them. Your what will not feed the people in your world. But if we get with the who, if we get with Jesus, if we let Jesus love us, will we feed people with our outliving, presence-orientated experience of Jesus? We're about to take communion. I'd just love to invite the, the band up today.